Tonight, we travel back in time to late 1800s New York to learn the dangers of accepting bro hugs from Hexenmeisters in Sullivan County. It's Wednesday at 9 p.m. Welcome back, Nick and Aaron, and all three people listening at home. Shout out to um, my Uncle Joe. Any other shout outs from you guys? Shout out to Amy. Uh, sh- shout out to Fallon. Great. We've got a, what a, what a varied audience. So this is my second episode, second story. Very excited to share with you guys today a very true story that I spent a lot of time researching. Um, I want to start by actually talking about how I researched it. I was reading newspapers back from the 1890s when the story takes place from the New York Times and the local paper of the area, which we'll talk about in a moment. So my previous story was, you know, talking about a haunted restaurant and how that the historical record doesn't really line up with the legends told about it and the ghost that haunts it. This story, however, is very interesting because it was very well documented in the news at the time. It was kind of a sensational story and has a really a lot of evidence. This did happen. So without further ado, let's take a two-hour drive oh, I northwest thought, of New York City. I thought you were going to say a two-hour story. I was like, oh boy. No, no, no. We're really in for it here. I got, yeah, I, I spent a lot of time researching this one. This should probably could go on for a while, but um, just picture this, right? Two hours drive north of New York City, a little west. Think of uh, about Poughkeepsie. Follow Route 52 west, and sooner or later, you'll end up in this little hamlet of Canosa Lake in Sullivan County, which is in the Catskill regions of New York. So what do you guys think about when I say Catskills, New York? What comes to mind? What, what pictures, what images, any, any ideas? Downstate. That's a controversial <laughs> opinion. What about you, Nick? Mountains and haunted objects. You know, that's all, uh, depending on who you ask, those are all pretty accurate. So for me, of course, the Catskills are very important. That's been my family's vacation place for two decades. Palachis. Up until very recently. Yes. Shout out to Palachis. It was really the like the vacation place of the Northeast, especially. It was New York. certainly a vacation place. It is. It's a very beautiful, rustic, scenic region. The entire area, the entire land there along the Hudson River and you know, even on the east and west has thrived off tourism for centuries, right? And the story that we're talking about, particularly in Sullivan County, is actually, to kind of put it in perspective, it's right where Woodstock was held back in the day. Oh. In fact, <laughs> the location of Woodstock, the concert, uh, the event, was like a 15-minute drive from where the story takes you place. Go? Yeah, let's go. Back in time, yeah. you mean? Yeah, Travel yeah, back? Yeah. yeah. Actually, funny enough, Sarah and I are visiting Bethel, New York, where Woodstock was held for a Zach Brown Band concert. And we're going to visit the location of the story uh, when we do that visit. Cause I it's will so say close. for... So I'm going to visit here. For a second, I thought you were going to say something about, yeah, there's time travel in this story. And I was going to be like, oh. Yeah, you had me going. Weird. No, unfortunately, this is... Uh, this is very grounded in history. It's a very sad tale. Aww. So Sullivan County historically has had a very strong immigrant presence, especially German, Irish, and Italian. Mm. And that continues pretty much to this day. And this story takes place when there is a large influx of immigrants, especially German immigrants, to the area back in the 1890s, which was a very interesting time for the U.S. This is when really the 
National American identity was forming, railroads were popping up, mass-produced media, newspapers, magazines were spreading across the country. They were increasingly popular. And so in this little tiny hamlet, so which is like, right, that just means really, really tiny town, like very small amounts of people living here, in Canosa Lake, which is named after the lake, Canosa Lake, there's a beautiful historic stone arch bridge. It fell into ruin throughout the 20th century, but it's been restored recently back to its original glory in the 1800s when it was built. This beautiful stone bridge gets a lot of traffic every January, especially at night, end of January. Many travelers flock to the bridge in memorial of the bizarre murder that took place there over 130 years ago. Is this a solved murder? It is a solved oh, murder. Not. This is not a murder mystery where I'm going to leave you guys hanging. It is a true crime. It's a tragic tale. And it's resulted in a haunting that's gone for oh, a while. And I'd like to go into that story, what happened that late January night, and go into some of the differences between the popular story that's told and the fully true story, which is very similar, but has some very important little differences. So sit back and relax and imagine... It's the 19th day of January, back in 1892. My favorite day. Very rural area, right? Think farmers, farming land, very spread out. It's close to home. (laughs) There you go, Aaron. It's very familiar with you. So there we are. It's late January night. A certain George Markert is having a drink or two with the boys at the halfway house, which is just a respectable roadside inn at the time, which is on the road from Jeffersonville to Calicoon. And this is about a quarter of a mile from the bridge that we just mentioned, the Stone Arch Bridge. He was eating supper there after having left his wife, Catherine, and his grandson, John, at their home. And their home was just 125 yards upstream of the bridge, which is, is that like a football field? A little bit more than a football field? Five yards more than a football field. Yeah. If you include the end zones, obviously. Walkable distances here. So it said he didn't drink much. All of them, they just had a good time. He heads out. And unfortunately, that's the last time that any of his neighbors and friends and family saw him alive. So in preparing the story, I mapped out, I think, the locations of where he lived and where this halfway house inn would have been. Oh, nice. I made a Google Google map, which I'm going to share with you guys in the Discord. Sick. And I'll put this in the show notes so you can follow along if you want. You can open it up if you, know, if you need to. And you can see... We've got the Stone Arch Bridge in yellow. Mm-hmm. We've got the Markert home in blue, a little north of it. And this is all along Calicoon Creek. And a little southwest, we have the halfway house. So this late January night, uh, around 11 o'clock, George is leaving the halfway house, trekking the short trek to home. He's going to cross over the bridge. And by all counts, this George was a very industrious and inoffensive man, a German immigrant. He had traveled to America 30 years ago, very poor at the time, but he worked up his way to purchasing a farm. And accounts differ on how successful he was. The New York Times said that he was pretty wealthy and, you know, profitable. But the local newspapers described him as just a poor farm laborer, which I think is more reputable. So we'll go with that. And something important to note about George is that he was twice married first to a Caroline Haidt, which was another local German immigrant. And unfortunately, she had passed away only a few years after their marriage. And 
he had a strange relationship with the Heights. And so, like I said, he was currently married to the beautiful Catherine. And so, George did not come home that night. And in the morning, his wife, very anxious, wondering what's going on, knowing that he was just a short walk away, would have been about a 20-minute walk, if even that, sends their grandson, Johnny, who's only eight years old at the time, to search for him. Now, it was late January. There was a lot of snow on the ground. And it didn't take Johnny long to walk outside and find splatters of blood in the freshly laid snow overnight. Good thing they sent Johnny. Right? Right around the Stone Arch Bridge. And he runs into a group of neighbors and they ask what's going on. And, and he explains his, his grandfather, George, hadn't come home that night. And they see the blood and they go, that's strange. And quickly those people start to search and they find a jackknife. Oh. which is an old term for a pocket knife, a table leg. I thought you were just stopping at a table. I was like, what? I don't imagine, right? Just a table leg. So like that wooden leg. It looks like it was fashioned to a cane. An old hat that Johnny knew belonged to his grandfather, George. So Johnny freaks out. The neighbors send him home. He runs home. And this is just a three-minute walk to his home. He runs, he runs to his mom and he screams, Pa's murdered and thrown over the bridge. That's what he assumes. And Catherine immediately sends for the innkeeper of the halfway house, gets together a big group of neighbors, and they begin the search for George. And it's pretty quick before they find tracks up the bridge, blood splatters, tracks of blood, as if it kind of gruesome. It looked as if bloody hands of someone were dragged up the bridge. There's blood clots on the center of the bridge on the stone side and it's very clear that something heavy was dragged up there and tossed over into the freezing cold waters of Calicoon Creek below. So quick question so when Johnny found the blood splatters that was just like the like one of the scenes of the crime but not like where the body was. Yeah so it's made pretty clear that there was a really drawn out and violent struggle here. It wasn't just a, uh, you know, one and done out of nowhere. The blood that Johnny saw was some distance away from the bridge. The tracks of blood were up along the bridge. The clothes, the hat, the jackknife, the um, table leg, which was used as a cane, which was splintered, was spread around the area. So this wasn't something that just happened in a small little part and whatever. It looked like it was a long, violent struggle. Presumably George, right, fought long and hard for his life. Maybe even fought back semi-successfully. Obviously, he lost in the end and was thrown over. There was no evidence of any body in the immediate area. There's no evidence of, you know, any attacker in the immediate vicinity. No other bodies. It was a mystery as to what happened. So, yeah, there was a lot of kind of uh, scattered evidence here. And George was a very respected farmer in the area. Basically, the entire community searches and spends three whole days dredging along the banks of Calicoon Creek before they find the poor body of George Markert about a mile downstream. Now, a few interesting things, especially with the number three. Now, you guys might not remember, but like a week or two ago, I told you guys to remember the number three. Yep. The number three comes up a lot in this story. Maybe we'll talk about why. So the Stone Arch Bridge is a beautiful bridge that has three big arches. And 
I'm going to send a picture of it. And I'll cut out this pause so you can see. Let's get this nice picture. Check out this link in the Discord slash show notes. It's a beautiful bridge. Got it. So we've got three arches. We've got the searchers dredging and searching for three days. And interestingly, the place where they found George's body, they had previously searched and passed and not seen anything three times oh. before. So, Nick, does that remind you of anything? So, missing 411. Yeah, missing 411. Aaron, have you heard anything about the, the missing 411 phenomenon? No, I have not. So, missing 411, that's the, uh, the label assigned to cases, uh, very bizarre cases of missing people, usually people that go missing in the woods that disappear without a sight. A very common theme, people are returned or, or people are found after incredibly long searches. Sometimes they're found in places that searchers have searched many, many, many times before. Like they are found in very obvious places that are very confusingly, you know, have, have not been found, even though they've been searched many places. Um, so that was an interesting connection there that reminded me of that. The, the connection with Missing 401 only goes that, that far because we do know what happened. Because we do find George Markert's body covered in slush ice with the tail of his heavy, heavy overcoat. Remember, this is late freezing cold January. The tail of his heavy overcoat drawn back over his head and face. And remember that little detail. Heavy overcoat drawn over his head and face when he's found. So they find this poor man's body after three days. They call the officers of the law, as, uh, as it was said in the newspaper. They make their investigation. They perform an autopsy. And the autopsy reveals gruesome details. The original report states that there are stab wounds covering his body, potentially around his neck. His skull had been fractured by several heavy blows by a club, presumably that that cane that belonged to him that was splintered in the ground near the bridge. And not only that, but on top of all that, no less than five bullet wounds were found in his head and back. Bullet wounds. So this poor man, between the, the 15, 20 minute walk between the halfway house and his home past the bridge, is stabbed, bludgeoned, shot, and then tossed into the Calicoon Creek. Wait, 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 wait. Let's take a couple steps back. You said that he was like a football field's length away from the halfway house earlier. The, or was that the bridge? His home is about a football's field length away from, oh, from the, bridge. the bridge. Okay, but still, he, he was yeah. still like killed there. If he has gunshot yeah, wounds... Yeah, so it was actually very close to home. easily hear gunshot wounds from 100 yards away. Yes, yeah, so this is an interesting detail. The, the wife at the time mentions that maybe she heard some noises at night, but she didn't hear any gunshots. Like, you would Um, know, especially back then, like, people are more familiar probably with the sound, because, you you know, hunting was very prevalent for most people still. I don't, you know, people didn't go, urbanization didn't, was kind of on the rise, but not everywhere. People would know what a gun sounds like pretty easily. So it's like, you feel like you'd hear something if there were five bullet wounds. Like, I don't think, were there suppressors back then? Probably not. <laughs> but maybe <laughs> some, maybe some she just discounted action? it. Maybe she discounted it as like, oh, it's probably just a hunter 
and didn't think of anything. I mean, I don't know about hunting laws back then, but I feel like hunting in the winter uh, yeah. might not be... I don't know when, like, seasons end. You know what we're going to have to do? We're going to have to recreate the scene. <laughs> we're going to have to go uh, in the, you know, wait for some late January deep snow, Perfect. heavy snowfall, walk about a football field's length away from and each shoot, other. Shoot at you. Um, shoot at you. Shoot Aaron. Oh, okay. Shoot, <laughs> shoot Aaron, and I'll let you guys know from a football field's length away if Perfect. I hear it or not. All right. You know? Perfect. Okay. But that's that's an interesting point. No one claims to have heard that middle night. Um, Yeah, very odd. So here we have this. Um, Now, thankfully, the story doesn't end here because you know if it did, it would just be a tragic, random murder. It seems. Mm -hmm. I mean, who would want to kill George Marker? Well, as you see, this this unlike other legends, uh, this one has a paper trail. It's been very well documented. And the New York Times has a little bit of details wrong, but the Sullivan County Record which detailed this and was a newspaper of the time of which I have links to in the show notes kept up. Um, they posted their first article on this about eight days after it happened. Mm. And even in that very first article, they mentioned this as they report on the poor murder of George. Nothing definite is known to lead to the identity of the murderer. And there is practically no clue left to work upon. Markert was not known to have an enemy in the world, with perhaps a single exception, of which we will not speak until later. And nobody would have committed the deed for money, as the man was poor. All suspicion is directed to the exception which we mention, and the developments will be published in our next issue. (laughs) Okay. So, while George was a beloved man... There was one particular person in Canosa Lake and the surrounding region who had it out for poor George. His eight-year-old grandson. His eight-year-old grandson, Johnny. <laughs> no. But you're actually very close. It was a relative. Oh. Was it the, the height lady that you mentioned? Yes. What, his, was so, that his ex now, like by the time he died? Was that his ex-wife? No, his ex-wife, Caroline Height, had oh. passed away. Oh, right, right, right. But he had known Caroline's brother, Adam Height, since childhood. And they were friendly. And they were very close when George was married to his sister, Caroline. But when she passed away, they, you know, they, they drew further and further apart. They didn't have that, that bond keeping them together. And they were still close. And uh, Adam Height lived with his wife and a few kids um, not too far from the Markert house. You know, like a walking distance away. A long walk, but yeah. Yeah, I guess the, the middle point would be a mutton Jeff dog grooming. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. So, oh yeah, I forgot. You can actually, on the, on the Google map, I also marked where, based on the, the records and the, the accounts from the newspapers, where I think his house would have been. Yeah, I just thought it was funny because it's modern. I speak, oh yeah, half past a dog groomer. That's where you No, I think go. it was actually closer to Western Sullivan Massage. <laughs> Yeah, well, that was a very popular place back then in the 1890s. The, uh, the Swiss immigrants would give you a, a Swedish oh, massage, lovely. you know. Uh, yeah, the pet grooming place as well. Um, all the, uh, the apartment complexes also were, uh, <laughs> were there. True story. So anyway, what is up with this Adam Height? Well, back in the region at the time, it was known by everyone in Canosa Lake, Calicoon, and um, Jeffersonville that Adam Height, brother-in-law of George Marker, 
was an entirely rational, normal, respectable man, except for one particular thing. He was a monomaniac. A what? Now, I had no idea what that word meant. Do you guys happen to know what monomaniac is or monomania? Is, is, it, is he like a zealot? Yes. Well, you know, if we break that word apart, we get Whoa. monomania. Crazy. Crazy. Oh. Yeah. He was crazy about one oh, thought, thing. And oh, one thing only. A religious thing. Mind. Well. Unless? Kind of. Because while these two were Roman Catholics, I assume many of the German immigrants at the Thank time goodness. were. Amen. Adam Height had the extremely peculiar delusion that George Markert, his brother-in-law, had placed a hex on him. Oh. Years ago. Uh, of course. Ah. I thought you were going to say something with, like, the divorce or something. That'd make too much sense. Oh, okay. So, whenever you hear this story now, this ghost story, and Adam Height plays a very important role in this, though not the role you might think. Hmm. The accounts of the story nowadays always paint Adam as a backward, superstitious idiot. I mean, the New York Times back in 18, the 1890s covering this story called him, they had very choice words, a, a total, uh, you know, ignoramus. And he even told, uh, even said that his family were, were complete idiots. You're telling idiots, me. And they all shared his his. The New idiocy. York Times exaggerated something so people would read it? <laughs> no way. Even back then. Exactly. Yeah, well, this was capitalized on. Because you see, when the story unfolds, the idea is, you know, it's 1892. It's a modern time, right? An industrial time. We've moved past old superstitions. And yet here in, in Sullivan County, slightly upstate New York, we've got this bizarre delusion of a man about his brother-in-law. But I looked into this, and Adam Height was not a dumb, superstitious idiot. Well, he was superstitious, but he was not an idiot. He was not a fool. His family was not stupid. One of his sons was even the local school teacher. And Adam Height, he was a German immigrant. He was born around 1850. About the time of the story, he's about 42. Um, George Markert, at the time of his death, was about 60, 62, 63. And Adam Height was supposedly more well-to-do than George. He was considered a good man despite being maybe a little greedy. So the story that comes out from this is that Markert and Height had been very good friends until about a year before the story takes place. Around that time, according to Adam, his life starts to fall apart. He starts developing terrible pain in pretty much every part of his body. His skin would feel on fire. Feel, he'd feel like he was being scratched and, and crawled, uh, ants crawling all over him. He'd be unable to get out of bed. He'd pass out in the middle of the day. He'd just fall down. He'd, his joints would freeze up. He'd turn pale. He'd turn green. He would have terrible digestive issues. He wouldn't be able to eat without throwing things up. Just complete, utter sickness. And he became convinced more and more that it was the result of his brother-in-law placing a curse on him. So that reference to uh, the suspicion of the uh, newspaper was on Adam Height. As soon as George Markert was found to be dead, everyone assumed the Heights were at fault. In fact, they quickly, when they found George's body, they went to the Height home and they found terrible, terrible attempts at covering up the murder. They found the weapon. They found the pistol that was used, that was shot. They found bloody clothes. They found the son of Adam, Joseph Height, the oldest son, covered in scratches and blood. They found um, 
different belongings of George's hiding, uh, you know, covered up, hidden in their property. And so, of course, they're quickly brought to trial. Adam Height, his son Joseph, and his other son John. And the entire story comes out. Adam Height claims that a few years ago, George patted him three times on the shoulder one day and said, you are a good brother-in-law, a good brother-in-law, a right good brother-in-law. And quote him, from that time on, I was ailing more or less all the time. I didn't know and no doctor could tell me what ailed me. Medicine done me no good. And so from this point on, every time Height became ill, he would claim that it was because of uh, George visiting him and watching him and tugging his beard. So imagine this, right? Two family friends that were close, a totally rational man going crazy over his brother-in-law, looking at him and tugging his beard. So Adam was in and out of hospitals. He saw many, many doctors. Medicine rarely worked. And if it ever helped, it was for a very short time. He started developing migraines. He would get aches and pains in his stomach, exhaustion, nausea, liver problems, you name it, nothing could be helped. Eventually, he was so exhausted by this that he started searching around the area of, of New York and even some in Pennsylvania for someone who could help him relieve his pain. Around this time, he wasn't thinking too much that it was, um, at the start, that it was, you know, some sort of hex. But he found a woman and a few others in New York City who claimed that he had no sickness. He had just been vexed by a Hexenmeister, which is the German word for sorcerer. So this poor, poor man, not an idiot, just a man suffering with insane, poor health, was pushed to the brink of insanity and was convinced by people that he had been vexed. And as long as George Markert refused to lift the curse or was alive, Adam would suffer. I guess we'll know if uh, it worked if the ailments go away, right? Right, guys? Yeah. Well, there's no happy ending to this story. Of course not. Um, as Adam got further and further into his monomania, he became convinced that it was George. It got to the point where he would start harassing George, just like out of nowhere. He would go to him and, and demand that George lift the curse from him. And George, this poor farm would be like, what are you talking about? I didn't, that's not a thing that doesn't exist. I didn't curse you. I can't lift a curse. I never placed a curse on you. And over time, Adam became more and more aggressive, more and more convinced that all of his problems, all of his ill health was due to his brother-in-law. And it was said that no one else in his family besides his oldest son, Joseph, believed him. His wife didn't believe him. His wife knew he was sick and watched him suffer, but she didn't believe in the superstition. His other sons and, and daughters didn't believe it. He said that Joseph was his only friend, the only friend he had. He was the only one who believed him. It got to a point eventually where right before the murder of George, Adam would preach it to anyone who would listen. He would go around demanding that people listen to him, that George had vexed him, that he was an evil sorcerer working for the devil, trying to kill his brother-in-law. He would even write letters. This is funny. He would even write letters and mail them to his brother-in-law, <laughs> just defaming him, saying, I know you've cursed me. Lift the curse. It must be lifted. You're, you know, you're killing me. I'm going to die if you don't yeah, change going anything. In person, that didn't work. So you know what, Will? Writing a letter. Exactly, right? For sure. Eventually, he said 
um, on trial for this, that he was once told that if he had a hat, a shirt, or clothing from George, his evil Hexenmeister, he would be able to take away the power from George, and he would be able to reverse the spell. And it said that at some point, uh, George's grandson Johnny was asked by one of the Heights to, uh, you know, just uh, if he could fetch like an old hat or an old shirt of his grandfather's, you know, that he wasn't using anymore, just to like, just to hand over to the Heights. And he didn't at the time, but that story came out during the trial. So poor Adam Height, suffering out of his mind, really, really to the point of insanity. During the trial, much to nobody's surprise, like I said, extremely incriminating evidence was found. And the three of them are arrested. The youngest son was dismissed with an alibi. But they find bloody clothes, boots, the used revolver. They find everything. They did a terrible job of covering their tracks. And interestingly, it was revealed that the son Joseph was the murderer. He eventually admitted to it and claimed it was done in self-defense. Mm. Now, all the modern tellings of this story, even the plaque on the bridge to this day, is wrong in the date. It says 1882. It's off by 10 years. Oh. It was 1892. And it claims that Adam and Joseph attacked and killed George. But that's not true. It was his son, Joseph, alone. Whether he was acting on his father's orders that late January night or doing it on his own to protect his father and try to regain his father's health, we'll never know. But Joseph admitted to the murder on self-defense, which, I mean, pretty ridiculous. And because this this trial was, um, you know, was based on this uh, superstition of a German idea of a Hexenmeister. This is what made it very uh, sensational in the New York Times. This is why they ran multiple, at least four or five stories on it over the years. It was painted as a very bizarre case of superstition amidst a, you know, a modernizing world. Uh, and it was painted as a pretty ridiculous throwback to like medieval era ridiculousness now if that was the entire story it would just be tragic being you know it'd be interesting it'd be bizarre that this happened but there are a lot of interesting uh lower levels lower layers to this story that we can run through here so why was this done right on the bridge why did joseph wait till then can you think of any reason why like the proximity to the bridge and to the calicoon creek would have played a role here and remember, Joseph is someone that believes that his uncle is a evil sorcerer with dark magic powers. Three arches. Ooh. You gotta kill the sorcerer at a place of three. I was thinking something like back in the way back in the day, didn't they used to like drown witches? Oh, awesome. Like, oh, you can float. Like I know witches and sorcerers not quite the same, but very similar. You know. It's probably related to that. that. That angle I didn't think of. And Nick, you're also on uh, the right idea, though, for a different point. So the idea was, right, that living, as in running, running water, was thought uh, to negate the yeah. devil's power. And therefore, the power of, you know, a Hexenmeister. So it was very purposely done on the Stone Arch Bridge, or, or on the bank of the, uh, the walkway up to the Stone Arch Bridge, 
because it was believed that George is the evil sorcerer, his power would be negated there, or at least very much weakened. And the point of threes, he was brutally murdered with three different methods. He was stabbed, he was bludgeoned, and he was shot before being tossed into the water. So it came out that Joseph was under the impression that because his uncle George had placed his hex on his father with the three pats on the back and with the three phrases, you're a good brother-in-law, the only way to reverse the hex, if George wasn't going to do it himself, was to kill him, kill the sorcerer in three distinct ways. And it just so happened that it was done in the Stone Arch Bridge with the three arches. Now, at the trial, obviously, self-defense did not uh, hold up. Adam Height himself was acquitted, interestingly. <laughs> but then, as far as I could tell, he was sent to an insane asylum, the Middletown Hospital, about a year later. Yeah. And he died only a few years later of chronic melancholia. What? He died of the I big sad. Yeah, the big, he died of the big sad. Wait, he died of depression? Yeah, he died only a few years later of chronic melancholia, which is not a recognized thing anymore, but literally just means, you know, depression. Um, he just wasted away well, in the I insane mean, asylum. Not going to say I feel bad for the guy. All right. Now, his son Joseph, the actual murderer, was charged with second-degree murder and sent to life in prison. How old was he again? At the time of this, he was, uh, I believe, like 22. Oh, his, oh I, I thought it was like, uh, when you, I know it was his eldest son, but I don't know why if I just misheard you. I thought he was like 16 or 17 or something. Yeah. He was, I mean, his, he was pretty young. He was around, he, he I mean, was younger than us. Ba- barely. If I remember correctly. But, yeah. Yeah. So he's sent to the local prison, Danamora. Um, though, interestingly, he only served 15 years before being released. and. He lived the rest of his life in peace. When did he die? He he died a peaceful death, as uh, as far as I'm aware. No, when? I'm not sure actually. I didn't I didn't see when he when he died. I guess well, later than 15. Yeah. years. Yeah, no, he he lived an entire rest of his life oh. in peace. Probably out of the you know out of the uh, <clears throat> suggestion or suggestibility of his father, filling his head with uh, you know superstitious ideas. Yeah. But life continued on in the hamlet of Canosa Lake and the towns of Jeffersonville and Calicoon. And this case was remembered and reported on for years as just a bizarre hex murder. One of the few that have happened in New York, um, in the area, more back during those centuries. Supposedly there are a few more. Um, That's what's always said, though I can't really find evidence of other ones. But this is definitely one that did happen, and it's definitely the most well-known one. And the reason I bring this story up, of course, is because it's said that nowadays this Stone Arch Bridge, because of this murder, is very much haunted. Perfect. Just a few years ago, the Sullivan County Paranormal Society, which sounds nice. so fun, like, you know, why don't we have a Rensselaer County Historical Society or, or, or something, right? That'd be fun. Would you guys join that? Would you be uh, too scared? Well, it depends on I one mean, what I they guess do it... and two who's already in it. I don't need Adam Height to be a part of the paranormal uh, group. 
You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I mean, if they're, like, performing, like, seances and, like, Ouija boards and all that stuff, I don't know. But, yeah. That's very fair. Yeah. Uh, it's probably a very interesting group of people, right? Like, what, what sort of people are drawn to uh, to joining local paranormal societies and doing ghost hunts? Our listeners you know, at like, home. Our listeners at home. You know, I would do that. I think we would do that for fun. But, you know, of course, you're going to be with people who uh, are well, we'd not doing it for group. fun. You know, we don't need to. That's true. We would, you know, a rival group, like a rival <laughs> gang, a ghost hunting gang <laughs> that, like, tries to get the scoop on the, on the ghosts oh. before they do, you know? That'd be great. <clears throat> That'd be great. Yeah. Except for the fact that we've uh, researched now like two stories prior to the 1900s. Don't worry about it. You know, it. <laughs> I think we'll get a jump on that case. <laughs> like we have to make our own. That's, that's a good point. <laughs> we just make up our own because that seems to spawn ghosts if uh, the country house yeah, restaurant is any indication. But um, there's a little element of that too in this story because... Many years later, and this is in 2015, and even a few years before that, this paranormal society, which I will send the link to their blog post about this, did an investigation here on the anniversary night of the murder, one year. They've got a dumb logo, I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's not the most developed website, it's a Wix website. Maybe I got to offer my services to them, clean up a bit. But they claim that many of their members have visited the bridge, which is now, by the way, a beautiful public park. It's like a small park, protected land. There's a very nice restaurant, an inn. I believe it's called the Stone Arch Inn, or I think it recently might have changed names, right on the the property nearby. Um, People go there and have picnics and spend time there. It's, It's a very beautiful, scenic little area. And not many people know what happened there. Unless they read the tiny little plaque on the bridge, which doesn't even have the details, right? But anyway, so some of the members of the society have gone and visited this park in the summertime. And they noted that when they did this visit on the anniversary, on the cold January night, it was a much, much different feeling. And they even explain as they pull up the winding driveway to the parking area there, they have a couple of sensitive members in their society of course, that they bring along. And they were struck with intense, intense feelings of bittersweet sorrow and anxiety. And so they made their way down the ice and snow to the bridge. It's not a bridge that's used anymore for like, uh, it's not used for, it's not used as a road. You, you can't drive over it. It's just a walking bridge now. And as they got closer and closer, the feelings of the sensitive people in the uh, historical uh, the paranormal society were so intense they were able to kind of walk forward feel it grow intensely take a step back feel it drop off you know walk forward walk back they were able to kind of draw a distinct line in the snow that once they passed that line they felt it the strongest and they had a few different sensitive members separately confirm that kind of cutoff which I think is bizarre. What do you guys think of that? And does that remind you of any of the stories you've heard? I can think of one thing, but what do you guys With think? The sensitives drawing a line? Yeah, like like literally like a almost like it strikes me like a like a field that they that oh, has a, a boundary, uh, uh, okay. right? Okay. You didn't 
And once you step into that area, it's like, whoa, then you feel the emotions. But you take it, you take a one step back and all of a sudden it's not there. As soon as you said that's bizarre. I was like, uh, Mr. Keel. Yeah. So the TNT area. Yeah. Uh for for Aaron, you might not know that reference, do you? John Keel? Is this with the book that we read or no? Is this something different? Yes, yes, the Mothman prophecies. So this comes up sometimes. It's come up in the story of Mothman. It's come up in the story of um how could I forget? What what's the name of the ranch? Nick, help me out. Skinwalker Ranch. Skinwalker Ranch, thank you. Um where there are like fields of something that when people are investigating this, step into it, they are overcome with emotion, but they can step out, they can kind of trace the boundary of this, which I find so bizarre. What is that? I will say though, in like some of those, they're not always like, you know, the quote, like sensitive people. That's true. Yeah. Even those stories. Like John even... Keel, I don't think John Keel described himself as that, so, but no. he, he said in the, in the book that he would like, he stepped in the area, felt like dread and all the common feelings when there's something weird. And then he stepped down and like, oh, I feel fine now. That's a good point. Yeah, that's a good point. Maybe he's so even stronger like, there. Yeah, maybe. But um, I mean, <laughs> lots of stuff in Mothman could be another episode. Yeah, it's a very, very common kind of paranormal experience people have where they can kind of uh, sense the boundaries of it, which I just don't understand. What does that mean? What does that imply? That's just bizarre. Um, but this invisible line that they're able to kind of just feel their way to is where they claim a lot of their team got most of their activity because as they're there, two of their members claim to see an apparition of a person. They even call back to, uh, what they call their base camp on their walkie talkie, which, uh, I assume to be like the, the person hanging out in the van. Uh Uh-huh. So you, (laughs) yes, me and phasmophobia. Um, to make sure that there isn't actually someone there. And, um, they both saw the same exact apparition, a tan or beige featureless silhouette. And the only way that they could really describe the apparition, the color of it was um, that of freshly tanned leather. Now, this struck me, this description of a featureless silhouette with kind of leather, like tan, beige, if you remember, George Marker, when his body was found, he was found with his tailcoat kind of covered over his head, covering mm-hmm. his head and body. So I wonder, like, you know, is there a connection? Is that the apparition of George? And is he, is he still wandering the area in the state that he was murdered and he was, or that his body was found? That would, that's pretty tragic. That sucks. But um, pretty spooky. And many, many people have claimed to see this apparition of George, presumably George, right? on the bridge at night or in the area uh, if they visit there. They saw this apparition multiple times, once come, seeing it come down the nearby hill, and another time seeing it duck behind a tree just a few minutes before the sighting on the hill. And that reminds me of uh, Nick's story in the cemetery, We're, seeing something poke out uh, from a it, gravestone, right? Oh, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. It's yeah, creepy. And of course, they had a lot of technical issues at the bridge. Um, whenever they crossed that invisible line, yeah, their walkie-talkies would go haywire. Uh, they would keep making calls back to uh, base camp, so they keep activating without being touched. And they believe, you know, they had a lot of 
They got a lot of prank calls from George during their investigation. Uh, they claim even that uh, many times they would ask, you know, George, are you here? Something along those lines. And, and that's when their walkie-talkies would freak out. But interestingly, they also had EMF detectors and they would get spikes on the bridge, of course. They also experienced temperature changes. Having the temperature drop by 5 to 10 degrees in a matter of seconds before going back to like a steady, you know, 34 degrees Fahrenheit. And they even used a spirit box. And this is the most interesting thing. It's such a tiny detail, but confuses me so much. So they had one of their sensitive members with a spirit box stand along that invisible line that they felt. And they stood there recording questions and, and the box's responses, if any. Right? And, you know, just to, to recall a spirit box, it's just going through different frequencies, um, assuming that the, the white noise that's generated, the, the spirit can kind of, you know, nudge it channel that into uh, into words. They claim as they were doing the spirit box, they got various words coming through. And the most clear one, so the most clear EVP that they caught is in response to a member asking, do you know who killed you? And they pause. And another member says, and they, they sympathize, and they say, we're sorry that bad things happened to you. And they claim immediately after saying this, the spirit box as clear as day, Adam. And they claim that they've sent in this EVP and gotten it like uh, reviewed by some expert. And they say, you know, it's, it's definitely. And interestingly, they have a video of this with a recording of it. I will say also on their website, they They're say Adam Height was the person convicted for the murder of George Height. Yes. They got yes. two. Yes. So. Two pretty big uh, problems yeah, with that sentence. Like, uh, yes. This story has uh, multiple different perspectives. It does. <laughs> this, this raises a lot of questions, right? So at the end here, what do we have? Well, we have the historical account of George Markert being murdered by Joseph Height, either at the command of or obviously at least under the influence of his father, Adam Height. We have the sensationalized versions of the story that claim that it was Joseph and Adam that killed George. But then we have recorded EVPs of the ghost of George saying, Adam, you know? And also the, like you just pointed out, this blog post from them, the people who who went out within with a spirit box claiming that it was <laughs> Adam Height killing George Height just doubly wrong right so what's going yeah. on here right i'm curious to you know, kind of just open it up to you guys and just let's discuss this like 
what is going on? Do we doubt the original record? Was it maybe, was Adam more involved? Was he part of the murder? Um, because why would the spirit say Adam? Now, is it, you know, so many different things here. What do you guys think? I've got a theory. So, like you said in, like, this article mentions, so it says, do you know who killed you? And then they paused, and then someone says, we're sorry that bad things happened to you. And then, and only then it says Adam. So maybe he's not answering the question, and maybe instead he's, you know, trying to contact them and tell them, like, something that they need. Like, maybe he was a Hexenmeister, and he did curse Adam, and he's his spirit's in limbo until he can convince someone that, you know, he actually did commit, or, like, he did put a hex on George. Other way around. What? Oh, I'm sorry. The article says Adam George? Height and George Height, and I'm yeah, no, yeah, yeah. I'm a little confused. Yeah, no, no, but yeah, yeah maybe um, yeah. George did put a hex on Adam. Mm. Oh wow! I didn't. I like did not curse, think you were yeah. gonna be on the murderer side. Well, wow. If supposedly there's no well, evidence that Adam murdered George. Yeah, he was he was acquitted and sent to an insane asylum just for, you know, his his involvement. Well, I'm, I'm sure even like there, I'm sure you could probably find records of court cases going back for forever because I mean you can do that already. Um, so if you see that Adam Height was acquitted, and like we could just look that up, that sentence that they put in there means they either didn't properly understand the story. Or something else is missing. Yeah. Also, you you know how I feel about audio evidence. I'm not convinced by one word. Did you, did you listen to it? Did you hear Adam? Yes. It, yes. And I specifically when. Well. When I listened to it. When I waited for the person to start saying we're sorry that bad things happened to you. And then I closed my eyes because obviously if I'm reading the word Adam, mm -hmm. I'm more likely to hear it. So I closed my eyes <laughs> and I heard it and it, it just kind of, it did not sound like Adam. <laughs> what did it sound like? I like, just like, it just syllables. sounds like, uh... <laughs> the quote them, the spirit box is clear as day. Adam. It sounds like, Al it sounds like Alm. Like, alm. <laughs> like, they're eating alm. <laughs> yeah, like, I just... I, what? One one word one word things never are convincing to me. Even if it's like, oh, it sounds like the name of the person associated with the murder of this guy who was originally saying he was this Hexenmeister. I, I don't think that's a convincing piece of evidence. Yeah, it's, I mean, just what is going on? I'll tell you guys. So first, obviously, my first sources were things like this. The first things that came up when I searched George or, you know, Adam Height murder, or George Market murder. I, I would read these articles and be like, okay, this first of all, this is, this is not the, this is not, this is clearly not a uh, primary or secondary source. But beyond that, they all contradicted each other immediately. Like all of them. <laughs> I'm like, okay, what is going, did this even happen? What is going on here? So that prompted me to did find. You give us, well, no, you said this was a real story this time. Yeah. So that prompted me to find the records from written at the time the main record being the cal uh the 
Sullivan County Record, the newspaper. Oh, it's a, that yeah, perfect. gave pages and pages. They were, I mean, in fact, let me post pictures of these people so that you guys know the faces of who we're dealing with. I'm going to have these pictures. Um, you know what? It's easy if I just post the Notion link. So open that up, scroll through towards the top. Um, you can see pictures of George, Adam, and Joseph. Joseph is kind of oh, handsome, I'd say. Quite the beard. I like on Adam. Yeah, Adam's got a beautiful beard. Uh, George looks like an old man just begging to be murdered. It's not, he doesn't look like a sorcerer, though. Yeah. I don't know. Um, I will also say, or rather ask, Frank, did you contact the supernatural or the paranormal society oh. in Sullivan County? Oh, no, I did not. I didn't even think of that. So, this, the, their latest uh, investigation. They did a second attempt of this. It was done in 2015. The video on their blog post. Yeah. So I'm not even sure if they're still. Um, you know, let's, Can let's, I, quick, uh, let's quick check their blog. I right actually now. do yeah. have it pulled up. Um, so their latest news is as of June 5th, 2019, um, that they are currently undergoing oh. many changes. Please stay tuned as our team's year progresses. So I'm thinking. Either they're not up to much, or they're not up to anything. Any year? I mean, that was even. Like I mean, that year. was still. That was this even was pre-COVID. Twenty nineteen. Twenty nineteen. Oh man. So maybe COVID so, just I mean, did them in, or what? But they have not been active. It seems. Interesting. So yeah, I mean, it. I think my take is that when you have a bunch of people who are told the story of, you know, you know, a, a slightly misinformed story, right? George Height and killed by Adam Height. And, you know, it was done 1882 and it was this and that, whatever. And they all come in with that idea. And they all come in with the idea that they're going to contact a spirit. They all come in with the idea that that's exactly what happened here. I don't know. I think that that, I know what Nick's going to say. I know what you're going to say. I think it kind of, I don't know, that, that, that energy they put out there, they just get that back, right? Like they just get back whatever they all think, whatever they're all convinced of. So maybe they did hear, hear back Adam, not because that was the truth of the matter, but because that's all what they expected to hear, right? Oh, um, yeah, so like, <laughs> you know, you want to call it Tulpa or something, but like, no, that that's so cheap to write to write everything off as that because that's that's no, it's I don't think that's true. it's not che- it's not cheap. Think of it this way: it's like, no, I'm saying to say everything's a yeah. Tulpa. That that's yeah, just yeah, dumb. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, what what is more powerful, right? And this is, I think, a good question to to maybe end on: is the historical, the actual historical event and the correct historical details of George's murder is the idea of that more powerful than the version of the story that's retold over and over and over again. And the only, pretty much the only version of the story that people who even know anything about George and Adam and Joseph know, right? In the minds of people, I think it could be argued that no matter how wrong or, or how many details are off, major or minor, the retelling of the story and that form of it is just a much more powerful like thought or just like it exists somewhere in some some you know level of reality that's just a more powerful idea than the actual 
historical happenings. And so when people maybe seek things out and evidence of things, I think they're going to get more feedback from the the idea of what everyone thinks happened than maybe what actually happened. Because is anyone really reading the Sullivan County record for what happened to poor old George? Are they really finding out that uh, they're just assuming that Adam Height was a buffoon, a superstitious buffoon, and they're not like, you know, looking into the details. So I think there's... I guess no one else except you. Yeah, except me, I guess. I, I paid for the New York Times to access their records, too, back in the Ooh. 1890s. I better make more. I got to yeah, find more stories so from them sorry. now. Um, <laughs> I don't know if you want that. Yeah, yeah, right. It's pretty cheap for the first year, I uh, recommend it. Um, use my promo code uh, W9PM now. That'd be cool. Yeah. Uh, New York Times, if you're listening, uh, feel oh free God. to sponsor us. Yeah, I, I just want to say it's great that we have readable PDF scans of newspapers from New York from 1892. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, it's true. I um, can't deny that one. So yeah, that's what I think. I think they're the which I think is a really interesting concept. If that's true, the like that that would mean that stories have weight to them stories have more power than facts. yeah stories might have in some scenarios more power than facts, especially if it's the version of a story that that everyone thinks and everyone like puts energy into and puts thought into when you think about it stories are ideas and yeah ideas have power ideas have power whether they're they're based in like reality or history or not so i want to set the record straight it wasn't adam it was joseph George probably was not a hexenmeister. He was a poor farmer trying to be a good brother-in-law. He suffered and died for it. And I place the blame on the people that convinced Adam that his brother-in-law was a hexenmeister. Shame on them. Are they French? They're not French. They were, I believe they were Pennsylvania Dutch. So they were like really old German immigrants to, uh, the U.S. Oh, that brought about many, many, many of their um. Let's get into like Amish territory. Yeah, like that area, like history and um, I don't want to say superstitions, mm. but you know what's the neutral word for superstitions? Their traditions and stuff. Yeah, um, yes. With them. So setting the record straight. That's my final thought. How about you guys? Disagree. <laughs> with what? There's, Go ahead. If there. Well, if there's something, it seems like there's something there. I don't know if the EVP that they found, they may have just been looking for something, you know, like, oh, I'm looking to hear some, either Adam or uh, Joseph, or I'm looking to hear something, and they got the closer answer, so that's what they went with. Um, But it's kind of hard to deny some of the, like, the temperature that's a little Mm -hmm. bit harder to, you know, fake. Um. I guess also the EMF is a little bit harder to fake. Um, and just the overall sense of like dread is a, a little like, I think there's something there. Yeah. Um, now, whether that means the history got it wrong or the stories got it wrong, I don't know. Um, but I think that there is the spirit of uh, George Market. Um, lingering for some reason whether he feels bad that he was a hexenmeister and placed a curse on adam or maybe he needs people to know the truth that the wrong man was acquitted or wow the wrong man was sentenced and the right man was acquitted 
Mm. So I think there's something fishy, and I can't quite tell what, but something's up. That's interesting. How about you, Nick? I don't know about this one. What do you mean? Unless I'm more convinced of uh, in your last one with the the restaurant. I'm blanking on the name. The country house restaurant. What do you mean? What do you What are you not convinced by here? You don't believe that this happened. You don't believe that there is the ghost that haunts or that. You had many more like accounts of things being there Mm. or like something being there whether it was annette williamson or whatever this one the like the the story like the anecdotes aren't really there Mm. in terms of do you um so what do you think do you believe it's it is not haunted at all but the story did happen or what do you that's more where i'm leaning towards yeah there's I mean, again, you know, with a lot of ghost stories, it's, it's, you know, mainly anecdotal for, and those stories get passed through and whatever, but it doesn't feel like there's a lot of anecdotal evidence at this bridge from what you've described. Like at a restaurant, it's really easy because there are employees there all the time. There are people there all the time working. All the witnesses. But this is, this is a park and people go there. It shouldn't just be on the anniversary of a, murder i know that you know that's very class you know kind of cliche like oh on the 50th anniversary of this murder whatever but there's there's no reason to me at least why people wouldn't experience anything in the summertime either and it doesn't seem like there are any anecdotes from there at least from what you described yeah not really things aren't really seen during the day no it's really at night. It's and I'm not. I'm not even saying during the day. People could. You can be at a park at nighttime. It's still. Uh, it's still. You know, New York in the winter time. Um. Or sorry, in like the fall and in the spring, like early spring, it can still get dark by at like six o'clock. People could still be at the park. True. No, that's and very true. So it's like there's just a real lack of like other stories. Do you think? the of paranormal society experience anything where do you think all their claims are coming from Just, um the uh, evp i'm not evp i'm not sold on at all um i'm taking a very cynical take with this one but I, that's um, all good the yeah, like aaron said the emf and the temperature like sure what about visions of of the ghost apparitions um there's a lot of things that can be out there stone tape theory stuff it's not it might not necessarily be george and even if it, it even if it is george i don't think he said adam mhm not convinced and by I the evp think, the incredibly no. clear evp no and i don't think he's he's not doing anything malicious he's not doing anything benevolent he's just kind of existing there it's like even if it is like a haunt haunted location it seems like minor enough that it's like, yeah, George is there. Would you be kind of afraid to visit it at out. night? Probably not. It seems like George hasn't done anything to, to you know, show that he was aggressive. True. In life. A poor soul. He's yeah, was murdered a, in uh, cold I mean, blood. Yeah, it was an aggressive death, but it's like also he fought back. 
a lot of times it doesn't happen in some of these things. It's just like a family gets murdered in their house, and that's yeah. kind of it. Like Amityville. True. There probably wasn't much fighting back then. But yeah, I'm, I'm kind of leaning... If there is a ghost there, and it is haunted, it probably is George. But he's just probably wandering. And that's it. Nothing bad, nothing good. Just neutral. Well, that's a very fair point. I will have to update you guys in August when I visit it. And I'll try my best to visit it towards uh, later in the day, as close to nighttime as I can. I don't know how uh, open to going oh. at like midnight Sarah would be. <laughs> but um, hey, if, you're, if you have Sarah, something's bound to be drawn. You know what? Um, yeah, it's true. I might actually go late <laughs> at night because I would probably have a hotel very close by. It's 15 minutes from the, the concert place. So maybe I'll get a little, maybe we'll stay in Canosa Lake. Just go by yourself. I'll go by myself. Can you do me a favor if you do so? Just Yeah, any message you want me to pass on or something? Not any message. Just like turn on the FM radio. Make sure it's a channel that doesn't get any music to it. Channel 7, right? Yeah, channel 7. And uh, just see if you hear anything. Ask ask him a question. Well, I'm pretty sure spirit boxes are just like tuned radios. Well, they rapidly go through frequencies. They, if you ever hear, like yeah. in the thing, you heard how it was kind of like a white noise. It, yeah. it, it, beca- it goes back and forth. Can I just like rotate a bunch of frequencies? Like the dial. Yeah, that's li- no, like remember in a like when we play Phasmophobia, the FM, like it'll go from like one hundred five. Oh yeah, five, just keep rotating. Right? Yeah. yeah, that's that's all it does. But that's uh, very doable. Yeah, just you know? just like scan through the channels, I guess, and see if you hear anything weird. Check the temperature in your car. Or better yet, don't, I feel like there's always, I mean, it's like, it's so counterintuitive to be like saying ghosts are real or not or trying to show that. Don't try and record anything or do anything. Yeah, I, know, yeah, I see what talk. you mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't, don't be sneaky. Don't hide on audio record. Just talk. Sarah's probably going to drop me off and then drive away. Yeah. And then if you experience something, I'm probably more likely to believe you. Because like you had no technology, you weren't trying to show it. You weren't trying to prove mm. anything. You were just there, trying to talk. Well, thank goodness I have friends that would believe me if I had no evidence, you know. But uh, yeah, I don't know if that would convince other people. But you know, you're right. I mean, I wanna, I want George to know that someone knows the truth. Someone knows his true story. So I'm gonna go say hello mm-hmm. to him. And you tell him that he materializes and he's like, thank you, Frank. And then just he like, takes his tail coat up to heaven off his face. He goes, <laughs> finally, couldn't breathe this, uh, this over my head. And yeah. <laughs> just shakes gets my shot hand. up to heaven. Yeah. <laughs> I say, go to the light. He's like, thanks, man. Yeah. Well, we well, probably would just be speaking like angry German to you. Yeah, that's true. Probably, just because uh, it's German. Yeah. It was a very German very community. Happy. I'm sure. Oh, I hundred percent spoke German. I wonder what their day-to-day language was, if, they were, uh, if it was so German that they all spoke German, mainly, instead of English. Maybe. Interesting. Um, newspaper was in English, though, so I, I'm sure that, mm. you know, they did speak English. Yeah. But yeah, so that's, that is the tale of the murder of George Markert. May his soul rest in peace. And I'm going to let him know. Um, pay him a visit. Maybe it'll be uh, on a Wednesday at 9 p.m. I don't know. We'll do it late, and I'll report back. (laughs) Thanks for listening.
that's all for tonight. Check out the show notes and all references used via the link in the description. We hope you enjoyed the show. We'll see you next Wednesday at 9 p.m. Sixty-five, sixty-eight, sixty-five, seventy-seven.